Well, good morning. Good to see everyone uh, as we begin a, an Advent series today. So uh, through December, uh, building up to Christmas, which falls on, on a Sunday this year, we're going to be looking at some the first two chapters of, of Matthew's Gospel and just drawing out some, some lessons and some encouragements uh, from the, those two chapters. So we're beginning with Matthew chapter 1, and uh, let me read verses 1 to 17 quickly. It's a genealogy. Uh, don't fall asleep. Uh, if I was reading the King James, it would say, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, but the, the English Standard Version doesn't use that word, so... Uh, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, or Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, and Abiod the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliod, and Eliod the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the reading of God's Word. So, uh, if, you, if you've been here probably longer than a year, you would know that we went through, we started uh, Chronicles, and that began with, I think it's 10 chapters of genealogies. And uh, there's a reason I say don't fall asleep, because for most of us, genealogies are not that important. Um, uh, it's not something that we, we, we you, you know, you might as a hobby look into it. You know, it's interesting, maybe fascinating to find out, you know, who were your great-great-great-grandparents and uh, try and find out, you know, where did you come from, what, you know, what family line, is anyone famous? And so there's sort of interest in those kind of things. But at the time of the scriptures and of the Hebrew nation, uh, genealogies are incredibly important. And this genealogy is incredibly important. Uh, in the Greek, you know, it starts off there in verse 1, and it says the book of the genealogy, literally the Greek word is Genesis, the book of Genesis. And uh, that word occurs all the way through, and that reminds us of Genesis, what we call Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and Matthew is really intentional to say this is a new beginning. Uh, Christ is coming into the world to start something new, and he gives us this list of his ancestors, and this list is a slightly different to Luke's list. Uh, this is, is really Jesus' sort of legal lineage, proof that he is a descendant of David and is the true king the true king of Israel, the true king ultimately of the world. And so these genealogies were incredibly important 
they vindicate who Jesus Christ is. They give authority to his claims to be the Messiah, to be the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament. And so they're uh, not to be skipped over, uh, as we saw with Chronicles. Uh, we're to try and see, okay, what's going on in here? And today, we're going to look at ge this genealogy today, and Lord willing, next Sunday, and draw out a whole lot of lessons. But today, we're going to look at something that is quite startling, especially to the original audience and to uh, traditional cultures or ancient cultures. might not be so startling to us, but it's the women who are listed in this genealogy. So genealogies were like our CVs, I guess you could say. Okay, so if you want to impress someone, uh, you say, this is what I've accomplished. That's how we work generally today. So you want to get a job, you have your CV, and you put in there you know, all the good things you've done. And you leave out the bad things, don't you? I'm sure. Uh, you don't say, well, I failed at this college. Uh, you, you go to the one that you passed at. You know? uh, this is the degree I got here. Uh, and so you include the, the achievements that you have accomplished to try and impress people. That's sort of the, the Western way of doing things. What have I accomplished? That's where I find my identity. But more traditional cultures, that's not so much the focus. It's who are you linked to? Who are you related to? Who are your ancestors? Uh, and here in Matthew's genealogy, and all genealogies, and, and probably everyone would do this, uh, people, certain people are left out. You know, if you, if you want to say, this is my ancestry, you leave out that strange uncle, don't you? Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, you're, even if, you, if you're not from a traditional culture at all, we, we all understand something of that. I remember as a teenager, my sister is a few years younger than me, I didn't want anyone to know that she was related to me. Okay. Uh, I've matured since then. But you know that time where you're very worried about peer pressure and you're, you know that sort of teenage time where you, you're going out with your friends and you don't really want other people to know. That's sort of the idea here. With genealogies, you would put everyone that's important to try and say, look at me, I'm related to this person. These are, the, these are my ancestors. And so you would go through your lineage and you would pick and choose and you would put in, and Matthew has done the same thing. Uh, he's even divided it up, you notice there at the end, into three sets of 14. Okay, three sets of 14. Um, some people have tried to say because David's name in Hebrew, uh, in, in Hebrew, the, the, the letters have that numerical value. And so they said David's name adds up to 14. Uh, if you want to learn more about that numerology, you can listen to the series on Revelation. But anyway, they say David's name adds up to 14, so maybe that's what Matthew's going for. The problem with that is that Matthew's written in Greek, okay? So it wouldn't have meant anything to anyone unless, unless they already knew Hebrew. I think a better explanation is that it's, it's six sets of seven. Three, three sets of 14 is six sets of seven. And the coming of Christ is really the inauguration of the seventh set. And if you know in Scripture, seven is the number of completion. And so Christ is the fulfillment. Uh, but Matthew has left out a lot of people to, to make it work with 14, 14, 14. But he has included some very interesting people. And today, as I said, we're going to look at these ladies that he includes, which would have been a shocking thing in the ancient world. Um, uh, it was a very patriarchal society. Uh, it was, remember, this is not what the Bible teaches. There was a very low view of women. This is the way the cultures uh, lived. Okay, this is not the teachings of the Bible. The rabbis uh, would, not, uh, would not value the testimony of a woman at all. Okay. In a court case, ladies were not called upon to testify because they said their testimony is worthless. That's how they were. They were viewed just a little bit higher than, than animals. That was really the view in these ancient Near Eastern cultures. And so for Matthew to include these ladies is shocking. Uh, it is startling, and I would try, like us to try and recover something of that uh, because we're, we're, we're used to the genealogies probably and maybe it's not so startling, but to try and be amazed. And what we're going to learn from this genealogy is amazing grace. Okay. God's grace, and wherever you find yourself, Whatever you've done, 
God's grace is available for you, and we find this in the very genealogies. And so, ordinarily, a genealogy would be full of powerful men, because men had the power, and so you would link it to, I'm related to this guy, I'm related to this person, so you need to respect me because this is where I, where I come from. But Matthew sort of turns things on its head, and so let's, let's go through these ladies. We're going to just learn some short lessons from each one, uh, and, um, and maybe this is nothing new to some of you, maybe to many of you growing up in the church. But I would encourage us, as I've also just been meditating this past week on this passage, to just be again amazed by God's grace and to be encouraged by His grace that is available to us. This is the gospel here in, in the genealogy. So the first lady we come across is a lady called Tamar. So look at um, uh, verse 3. It talks about Judah, the son of Jacob, and then he's the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And so we go all the way back to Genesis 38. And uh, just before we, we learn about Joseph, and um, Joseph has a, uh, takes up about a third of the book of Genesis. And right sort of suddenly, in a sort of, it seems quite strange, the story of Joseph is interrupted, and we have this story in Genesis 38 of Judah and Tamar. And so Judah had married a Canaanite woman, and he was forbidden from doing that. He was not supposed to do that. Uh, he was supposed to marry someone from his own family, extended family. Okay? He was not to go out to those who rejected the God of Israel. He was supposed to take a believer, we could say. In the, uh, he was supposed to take someone who trusted in the God of Israel. But he disobeys, and he goes and he marries a Canaanite, and he has three sons, Ur and Onan, and uh, the, Ur takes... Um, this lady, Tamar, to be his wife. She's also a Canaanite. Okay, and remember, the Canaanites uh, are not good people. As you read through the Bible, they end up doing horrific things. They sacrifice their babies to false gods. Uh, they are, are guilty of all types of abominations. But Ur marries this lady, Tamar, uh, but as we saw in Chronicles as well, the scripture just says something very short about Ur. It says he was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. That's all it says about him. He was evil, and the Lord put him to death. A startling epithet. Uh, that's it. He, God was angry with this man because of his sin. And so now Tamar is a widow. A shameful situation in, in the ancient world, in agrarian cultures. Uh, she is without a husband, she is without children, and children were the means of being cared for. So you would hopefully, and, and they would uh, prioritize having a son, that's why sons were so valuable, because they could uh, care for the land and raise crops and care for the mother. Uh, there were no pension schemes, there was no um, uh, sort of, you know, you could go to the dole or something like that. There was nothing like that. And so here she's in a shameful situation, not because of any sin that she's done, just because of a situation. But there was a law that the brother-in-law should then marry uh, his, his sister-in-law and raise up children. And so Onan does this, but he, he uh, refuses to have children with her because if he has children, if he raises up descendants to his brother, it's going to affect his inheritance. So he is very greedy, uh, and so God judges Onan and kills him. Uh, now, the Bible does not go into, the, into the, the, the psychological and emotional and uh, state of all of these things, but imagine being Tamar. Imagine being in that situation. God has killed two of your husbands. In fact, the Scriptures tell us uh, Judah is supposed to give his third son to Tamar, Sheila, that's his name, not, not Sheila. Okay. <laughs> Uh, S-H-E-L-A-H. Uh, but he, he, Judah actually thinks the problem is Tamar. That's why my sons are dying. She's the problem. Okay. So again, the shame that is placed upon Tamar. Uh, she is a widow. Two of her husbands have died. Her father-in-law does not want to honor his responsibilities. Uh, and so then she makes a plan 
and ends up sleeping with Judah. She deceives Judah. She pretends to be a prostitute um, and reveals something of the character of Judah that he actually sleeps with her, uh, that he was unfaithful to his wife. And then she has these descendants. And in fact, she is honored. She is the only woman in the Old Testament who is called righteous. Okay? Um, but she is added here into the genealogy. So I want to see, first of all, the things that are against her. She was not an Israelite. She was a Canaanite. She was outside of the commonwealth of Israel. Ethnically, she was not one of God's people. And yet here she is in this lineage. Uh, she had tremendous shame. What we'll see with these ladies is they either have shame because of sin, actual sin that they've committed. Okay, and this is true of us as well today, however much we try and reject it and deny it, uh, is that you will have shame because of the sins that you've committed. Okay? No matter what society tells us and how much we try and reject it, you will have shame because of things that you have done in your life. And sometimes you forget them, and then other times suddenly they come flooding back. Have you ever had that experience? You suddenly remember the things that you did maybe 20, 30 years ago, and it, it startles you. That shame is still there. But then we'll also find, like Tamar, there is shame simply because of the world in which we live. The shame of, especially in these cultures, the shame of not being married. And maybe that's still true in traditional cultures. Ladies who are single are looked down upon. They've done nothing wrong, but simply because of the world in which we live, there is a, a stigma that is attached. Or a lady marries and is unable to have children. And that was a massive stigma in, in the Scripture. And so Tamar has the shame of being widowed twice. Uh, if Judah thought she was the problem, no doubt everyone else thought she was the problem. And yet she wasn't. And so wherever you find yourself, if you're in the, you know, an, uh, an ethnicity, a culture that is looked down upon, uh, a small ethnic group, a rejected ethnic group, uh, maybe not even having an identity like that. You don't even know who you are. You're like me. I'm like, <laughs> pavement special. There's uh, like 20 different nationalities in my, in my past. Uh, the gospel is for you because in Christ... Uh, we are accepted and loved, and that's what's coming across here. And the shame, maybe there's rejection uh, from your family, you're single, you don't have children, you don't have the right job, they wanted you to be an accountant and you became an artist instead, I don't know. Uh, but all of those things, those are real things. But in the gospel, what, we're going to, what we see here to be part of God's family is that the gospel overcomes those things, and is bigger than those things. And so that's the first lady that we see. The next lady that we come across uh, is Rahab. And so you can jump down to verse 5. There we find Rahab. And as I said to you earlier, that there are some people uh, in this list who have shame because of sins that they've committed. Well, Rahab is one of them. Rahab is known as the harlot, the prostitute. Okay. Uh, that, is, that is the title that is given to her throughout Scripture, Rahab, the harlot. Okay. Uh, she again was not a Jew. She lived in the city of Jericho, a city that God judged. She was a Canaanite as well, uh, selling her body. Okay, we're not told all the details, why, or anything like that. But even in today's age, even in enlightened Western world where nothing is frowned upon, being a prostitute is still a shameful thing, even in this age. How much more in traditional cultures? The shame that is upon Rahab. And maybe you're scared and you're saying, there's things that I've done, sins that I've committed. How can I be a part of God's family? I've done so many terrible things in my life, it's, I, I can't. It's too much. Because, of course, every religion works on performance, doesn't it? You must be good people. Okay? That's what it means to be. You know, you're religious. You're a good person. You're a nice person. You haven't done heinous things or terrible things. You're a good person, and so you're a, 
you're a good Christian, you're a good Muslim, you're a good Buddhist, whatever it is. But the gospel, true Christianity, again, wipes that out. Here, unashamedly, we find Rahab, a pagan harlot brought into the lineage of Jesus Christ. And remember, behind the scriptures is God, the triune God. And the scriptures say Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Isn't it remarkable? He's not ashamed to have Rahab as one of his ancestors. How many of us would put that on our CV? My great-great-great-grandmother was a prostitute. None of us do that. But the King of Glory does. And so whatever you have done in your past, and, and, and if, 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 you're, if you're, you, know, you still think, yeah, but I've done even worse things than that. Well, I'll tell you there's murderers in God's kingdom. We're going to see next week. Paul, the greatest apostle, was a murderer. Whatever it is you've done, there is forgiveness. There is the offer of grace. And then we move straight on to Ruth in verse 5. And so Ruth, there's a whole book named after her, just a short little book, one of the most beautiful books in, in, in Scripture, four chapters. Uh, but it's during the time of the judges, so before, before uh, the monarchy is established, the time of the judges where we're told that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it's a time of, of chaos and immorality, and uh, God sends a famine. Uh, famine was a sign of judgment to Israel. God said in Deuteronomy, if you don't walk in my ways, if you don't obey me, I will send famine upon you. And that's exactly what he did. And instead of trusting God, um, uh, Naomi and her husband flee to Moab. Okay? They leave Israel and they go to Moab uh, to try and survive. And while they're there, their sons marry ladies, and one of the ladies, one of the sons marries, marries Ruth. Um, but then, and it's it's the way that way it's written is it's 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 judgment. All the men die while they're in Moab, and so you're left with these widows again, shameful. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And Naomi says, "I'm going home. Okay, I'm going back to Israel." You can stay here. And Orpah says, okay, I'll stay here. But Ruth says, no, I will go with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She says she's going to follow the God of Israel. And she, she is faithful to Naomi, and she goes back. And there's a beautiful story, a meeting of Boaz. But here she is included, and she is a Moabites. Again, not part of Israel. And in fact, I want to read you a passage, cursed. The Moabites were cursed by God as a nation. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Moabites are cursed by God. It seemed to be totally hopeless. And let me say to you, if you're not a Christian, you're under the curse of God. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not something I'm saying. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not cursing you. It's what the Scripture teaches you believe if you do not believe you are condemned already but this story tells us even if there is a curse upon you if you repent and put your trust in Christ there is forgiveness and there is mercy notice what Ruth does she renounces her her culture her sinful culture She's, she becomes a Jew she says your people will be my people and your God will be my God She fathers Obed, and he's the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. She's the great-grandmother of King David. And so again we see, wherever you find yourself, and remember these things are not 
uh, we can reduce them just to ethnic things. But wherever you feel, wherever you're an outsider, in whatever way, okay, these, these stories are saying in Christ you can be on the inside, you can be part of His family, the only family that counts. fourth lady we come to, <clears throat> sorry, you jump down to verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, by the wife of Uriah, and so her name isn't actually mentioned here, uh, but I'm sure if you, if you grew up in a Christian home, you know that her name is Bathsheba. Uh, Matthew is not is not, not writing her name uh, as a slight on her. Uh, we'll see next week why he, he words it in this way. But here is Bathsheba. Bathsheba is included in the genealogy. And so she was the wife of Uriah. Uh, Uriah the Hittite. So again, beautiful story. Uh, we're not sure if she was also uh, a Canaanite like her husband, or if she was an Israelite, but of course they had converted to Judaism. Uh, so Uriah was a Hittite, but he is saved and becomes one of David's mighty men. And he is a man of incredible character. You can go and read the story and how, he, how faithful and valiant and honorable he is. <clears throat> and he is, he is uh, um, betrayed in the most heinous way by, by his king, by David. <clears throat> Uh, so back to Bathsheba, though. Uh, I know that it's quite... I, I, there's a famous pastor even who says that Bathsheba was raped. Okay? He says David raped Bathsheba. Um, and, and I think in the Me Too movement, that's a, a popular view. Uh, there is nothing in the text to say that at all. Uh, let me read a passage from Deuteronomy 22. It says, if there is a betrothed virgin, so uh, engagement at that time was like marriage, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. Uh, the scriptures were very clear. If you were raped, you cried out for help. Okay. She never cries out for help. Uh, there does not seem to be any resistance. Um, David is, of course, is is more guilty uh, because of the power that he wielded, but he did not respond. she did not respond, she did not resist. There is no account of that. She was complicit in this. Uh, we can surmise, we don't know if she was attracted to his power, if she uh, wanted certain things. We don't know, the Bible does not tell us, but simply to say that she is not portrayed in a positive light in this situation. And so again, a grievous sin against such a man of integrity as Uriah the Hittite. And yet, again, she is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So once again, whatever you have done, whatever sin you have committed in your past, you can be a part of God's family. There is grace. There is forgiveness. And then the last lady that we come to, good verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So we come to Mary, and it's quite startling the way it's worded. Uh, it does not say Joseph, the father of Jesus, because, uh, of course, it was a virgin birth. And uh, we'll look at that in the weeks to come. Joseph is not the biological father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is shocking language. When Joseph is mentioned, he's mentioned as the husband of Mary. The focus is on, on Mary. And Mary, of course, is, is an honorable woman, a godly woman. But I want to say this, that uh, every biblical scholar I've read, um, she's, she's young, a teenager, when she is married. So again, whatever, whatever 
what we see from this list of ladies, wherever you find yourself, so first of all, it's gender. Gender uh, at that time was a reason not to be honored, not to be accepted, not to be valued. But in Christ, that is changed. Whatever your gender, there's two genders, by the way. Uh, whatever your gender, whatever your gender, in Christ we are of equal value. Whatever your ethnicity, whatever your background, whatever your culture, uh, whatever sense of alienation or outsidedness, in Christ we are all accepted as we come in repentance and faith. Whatever your shame from your sin or from your state in life, in Christ you're accepted and loved perfectly. Whatever your socioeconomic category, Ruth was poor. It was a famine. They had nowhere to go. They were, you can go and read the story. They're scrounging. They're, they're, they're going to the fields and picking the gleanings, what's left over. That's how they're living, hand to mouth. Whatever category you find yourself in, in Christ, there is a welcome. And whatever your age, so as you sit here and you're a young person, and Mary's an example of this, whatever your age, you can say, well, I'm, I'm too young to, to follow Christ. I'm too young to obey Him. I'm too young to understand these things. Uh, I'm too young to, uh, to, to be of any value to the kingdom of God. No. Okay. Uh, there are, are young people that God uses in the Scriptures, young kings that He uses, and here Mary is an example of a young person. I mean, we're surmising again, but we have the Psalms that tell us of, of the psychological and emotional trauma that people go through. You imagine the experience of Mary as a young girl called by an angel. You're pregnant and you're not even married yet in a traditional culture. The shame. And yet she says... Whatever you say, whatever the Lord says, let it be. She trusts the Lord in spite of her age, uh, in spite of the culture. And so a challenge to, to you young people, uh, don't, don't let that stop you from serving the Lord. Don't say, I have nothing to offer, I have nothing to, to give, uh, or I'll wait till I'm older. No, today is the day of salvation. Okay? You don't know if you have tomorrow. Now, how is all of this possible? Well, in the gospel, it is possible because Christ took upon himself all our alienation and all our shame and all our sin. And carrying the genealogy, it's pointing towards that. To be a part of God's family, the good news is that Christ took the place of sinners. Christ in the gospel opens up to all nations. Matthew will end with that. Matthew is written primarily, primarily to a Jewish audience. But it ends with the Great Commission, doesn't it? The gospel is to go out to, to all nations. And so, again, as a Christian, I also want you to notice that all of these situations are messy. Aren't they seriously messy? Okay, it's not... Uh, you know, it will just say in a few sentences a certain thing. But do you think any of these situations were pleasant situations? The traumatic situations. Both Tamar's husbands killed, her father-in-law rejecting her. A harlot in Jericho. She marries later on. What baggage did she bring into all of that? The, the polygamy, the brokenness, the sin. It's a mess. It's a nightmare. And yet... In all of that, God is working to bring about salvation. And so in your life and my life as God's people, if you're expecting a life without any messiness, okay, <laughs> uh, you, you're not going to get it. Okay? Uh, read the churches in the New Testament. It's, there's messiness. There's going to be messiness in the Christian life. I'm not saying a justification for sin at all. Not at all. But if you're expecting there to be no sin, that's not going to happen yet. It is coming. But there is going to be messiness 
But there is grace in the messiness. There is forgiveness in the messiness. There is hope in the messiness. It will not last forever. There is a time coming, the seventh age, the seventh period has been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. It will be consummated when he comes again. And every tear is wiped away. No more shame. Okay? No more looking down on anyone else. All the cultures, all the groups, all the genders, praising God, worshiping God, loving each other perfectly. That is coming. It's not going to happen now, unfortunately. We try by God's grace as much as possible, but there's going to be messiness. And so what I, what, the encouragement I want to say to you is if you're expecting utopia, you're going to be disappointed the whole time. Okay? You just understand, no, it's a fallen world. There's my sin. There's all the sin of everyone else in church and my spouse and my children and my parents and that. It's... This is what is promised in the Bible. There's going to be messiness. David says where there's oxen, he quotes from the Old Testament, there's dung. There's going to be messiness. You will be destroyed if you're expecting utopia now. we, We always rail on the prosperity people, but I think most Christians still think, if I'm a Christian, things should still go well for me. Not always. It will one day. But it's in this ugliness and this mess and this brokenness and this uh, sin and shame and uh, all of these things that God works. And he brings, he brings the Messiah out of all of this. The King comes who inaugurates a new age. And if you're not a Christian... Maybe you're sitting there with shame. Maybe you're sitting there, I've done too much. There's no way back. That's a lie from the devil. Look at these ladies. There is hope, there is grace, there is forgiveness. But you need to humble yourself and come to him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for just even in this short genealogy, the incredible power and beauty of the gospel. Uh, We thank you for the fact that you are a God who who works not just in spite of evil, but actually uses evil for good, uses brokenness for good. You give beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. You take the most heinous, the most evil event of all history, the murder of your sinless son, the torture of your son, the humiliation of your son, who never ever sinned, was never worthy of any rejection, any harm, any weakness. And yet wicked men took him and humiliated him and spat upon him and tortured him and nailed him to a cruel cross. And you used that as the greatest victory, the greatest act of good so that we as Christians rejoice in the cross. We're not ashamed of the cross. It is, it is the most glorious event of history because you took our place there, Lord Jesus. And so we do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work if there are any here who feel alienated, feel unable, unworthy, that they would learn from uh, these little vignettes, these stories, that there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is salvation in Christ, that they too may be part of his family. And for your children, Lord, may may we again rejoice that you have had mercy upon us. We we're not what we want to be, Lord. Definitely not. Uh, But we do thank you that we are not what we once were. Uh, That no matter how small the change, there has been change by your grace. We praise you for that and we look forward to the resurrection. And so keep us faithful, keep us persevering. Keep us from um, false expectations. And keep us trusting in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, we, we come to communion this morning, and really communion uh, is a picture of the fact that God has saved people from uh, all nations, all backgrounds, all different degrees of sin and shame, uh, all genders, and though we are many, we are one body. And as we eat and drink together, that's what is being symbolized. We belong to one another. Uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united in Him. And so communion is a wonderful display of that. And I just want to read a, a short account. I was reading the Grace Gem this morning, and uh, Spurgeon, it had Spurgeon this morning, and he spoke about Mephibosheth and uh, feasting at the king's table. And it's just a beautiful picture of our communion. So don't worry, you might be sitting there thinking, who's Mephibosheth? Uh, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you. And it's an account found in Second Samuel chapter 9. It says, then the king, and that's David. David has become the king of Israel properly. Saul was killed. And Jonathan was killed, and so David is now the king of Israel. And he called Ziba, who was Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. That's Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul. And Saul's family, apart from Jonathan, had been enemies of David. Okay. Uh, even, even David's own wife, uh, was Saul's daughter, had turned against uh, or later on turns against David. Uh, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. So this is what he's saying to Ziba. He's saying, Ziba, you'll take Saul's land and you will look after it so that you can care for Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Okay. See how incredible, how gracious that is of David. Uh, Saul... His enemy, Saul, the one who tried to kill him on numerous occasions, who hunted him down, uh, chased him off into the wilderness to hide in a cave. He says, who are the, the relatives that are still alive? still alive? Mephibosheth, his grandson, is still alive. He will eat at my table. All his meals, he will come into my home. I will not uh, cast him away. I will not punish him for the sins of Saul. He will eat at my table. And Ziba says, okay, all that you say we will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Isn't that beautiful? He was treated as though he was one of the sons of David. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table... And then it says this, right at the end, now he was lame in both his feet. Mephibosheth was lame in both his feet. Again, uh, in Scripture, and especially the Old Testament, and you can see it when Jesus comes and does miracles, sickness was a shameful thing. It was a sign of God's judgment upon you. Those who had leprosy could not come into to worship in the temple. Uh, those who were lame often became beggars. And so this person was, seemed to be someone who had been judged by God, an outcast, someone that you wouldn't want to be associated with, a person who experienced deep shame, was paralyzed. And yet he is brought into the king's house and sits and eats at the king's table. And so that's a picture of, of communion. It points us to... Uh, our privilege, our shame, our brokenness, and yet we are brought into the king's house. We are called to eat and drink with him. He feeds us. He treats us as his sons and daughters. In fact, more than that, we are actually adopted into his family. We are his sons and daughters. Legally, we are the sons and daughters of God, given the rights and privileges of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, this table is a glorious table, a glorious picture of our acceptance and love in Christ.
We belong to Him, and He sustains us and feeds us. And so this is a table for believers, those who have repented and put their trust in Christ, those who are fighting their sin, not perfect, but there is a warning that Paul gives us. If there is unrepentant sin, sin that you are refusing to fight, There is a warning. If you eat and drink, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself, condemnation upon yourself. But our cry, as it is every Lord's Day that we have communion, is, is don't carry on in that path. There is no need. Humble yourself. Seek the Lord. Ask Him for forgiveness. Commit to making, taking steps to fight that sin. If there's restitution that you need to make, that you will do that. As you leave this place, you will go and make right. If you've taken from someone, if you've lied to someone, if you've, uh, whatever it is, that you will seek to make it right and eat and drink and know God's grace and his love and his sustaining power. Well, I'm going to give us a few moments just to examine ourselves, the scripture says, uh, to think on the gospel, the grace of God. He's brought us into his family, no matter our background, our past. And so just a few moments of silence and then I'll... I'll pray for us. Father, we again thank you for this feast in the wilderness, um, this time of uh, feeding spiritually as we eat and drink by faith. We are, we are experiencing the means of grace. You strengthen us on the inside. You increase our faith. You give us more love for you. And so we do ask that everyone who partakes would eat and drink by faith they would know that this bread is there to, to strengthen their hearts and this wine is there to gladden their hearts. And as we head back into this, this world that is against us in every way, that is contrary to our thinking, contrary to our feeling, that we would be ready, that we would be strong in the strength and the grace that you provide. So please feed us, we pray, and so we set aside this uh, bread and grape juice now for holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask the stewards to, to come forward now as we hand out the bread. So please take and then we'll, we'll eat together.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you that in the simple act of eating and drinking, we proclaim the gospel. Uh, We proclaim that you are a gracious God who feeds and sustains undeserving sinners. You are a God who gives us good things to enjoy in spite of what we have done. You're a God who will preserve us to the very end. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And so we do pray that As this message has been proclaimed through this physical act, uh, that our own hearts and the hearts of all believers here would be strengthened and encouraged. And for those who are not believers, that in watching this, they would have uh, seen the message of the gospel, and that you would work by your spirit and draw them to yourself. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.
Well, if you're able to, please stand with me as we sing a beautiful closing hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Just a reminder, the carol service this evening, Topos 5, even if you came last week, come again. You know the second performance is always better because they've had more practice, so 